This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Hank Wesselman. Hank Wesselman is a paleoanthropologist and a shamanic practitioner and teacher who has worked with noted anthropologists investigating the mysteries of human origins in Africa. With Sounds True, Hank has released the book Awakening to the Spirit World, which he's co-authored with shamanic teacher Sandra Ingerman, and he also has a new book from Sounds True called The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Hank and I spoke about his relationship with Kahuna elder and mystic Hale Makua. Hank shared with us some of the central lessons he learned from his friendship with Hale Makua, including teachings on the nature of time, how to connect with one's higher self, and what's meant by the bowl of light, and how to clear out any obstacles that there might be in our heart that are obstructing our own contact with light. We also spoke about what he and Hale Makua called an ancestral grand plan. Here's my very intriguing conversation with Hank Wesselman. Hank, you've released a new book with Sounds True called The Bowl of Light, and I'd love to talk with you a little bit about some of its central themes. The book focuses on your friendship with Hale Makua, who is known as a kahuna. And to begin with, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what it means that he was a kahuna. Is that just another word for a Hawaiian shaman? Well, it's interesting that you should ask, because the word kahuna is a word which is not used lightly, nor is it carried lightly by the one who who uh, who uh, carries that mantle. The word kahuna implies mastery. And traditionally in Polynesia, there were many different kinds of kahuna. I mean, you had kahunas of geomancy, you had kahunas of prayer who were ceremonialists, you had kahunas of navigation, kahunas of, of image carving. Makua was a mystic. He was a kahuna kupua. And you could say that he was a shaman because he had such an ongoing and open relationship with his ancestors in spirit. In fact, as I got to know him, I learned that he had, you know, approximately 27 generations of ancestors following him around as his spiritual advisors. And it was like he had an open link to these ancestors, and all the time. So um, you could call Makua a shaman. Uh, The word kahuna, of course, being mastery, involves self-mastery. And I might add here that, like the word shaman, no shaman or kahuna ever calls themselves a shaman or a kahuna. It just isn't done. It has to do with humility. And as we all know, the folks on the other side of the mirror who provide us with these special abilities and and the energy with which to help others, 
they don't regard it highly when you go around calling yourself something. So Makua never called himself a kohono, but he certainly was, and he was kohono on both sides of his family. In fact, I learned in getting to know him that he had an exceptional genealogy, and in Polynesia, genealogy is everything. On his mother's side, he was a seventh-generation direct descendant of King Kamehameha, and everybody's heard about him. On his father's side, he was the seventh-generation direct descendant of High Chief uh, Keiwa, who Kamehameha killed to become the king. Keiwa was Kamehameha's cousin. And so, because Keiwa was a high chief, Makua had this exceptional genealogy, and everybody in Polynesia knew who he was. You know, if you went to Easter Island or or to uh, New Zealand or Tahiti or Huahine or Raiatea, everyone knew him. And in his elder years, he really moved towards becoming a world figure in the sense that the Ford Foundation discovered him, and they would send him to speak to the Native American nations. He was on stage with the Dalai Lama at the United Nations in New York, and he was sent to many of the conferences for the World Indigenous Spiritual Network in Africa and elsewhere. So this guy was really something. I, I guess you could say in many ways he was kind of like the Dalai Lama of Polynesia, but in Hawaii, very few people knew who he was because he kept a very low profile because of his genuine humility. So the fact that I, as an anthropologist, came into relationship with this interesting man is unusual, to say the least. And in the old days, of course, Kahuna wisdom was guarded very, very carefully and very, very rarely shared with outsiders. So this was a, an extraordinary blessing for me to be in relationship with this man during the last years of his life. Now, you mentioned that he seemed to you to have this unimpeded access, this free access to 27 generations of ancestors. So I'm curious, first of all, what you mean by that and how you witnessed this, what you actually saw that gave evidence of that kind of access to ancestral knowledge or wisdom. Well, Makua came to look me over at a conference, that, uh, at an institute where I was presenting a, a, a talk. And this was, you know, I knew that sooner or later the Kohona families might send somebody in to have a look at me because I wrote this book, Spirit Walker, back in 1995, and it contained a lot of Kohona wisdom and a lot of knowledge from that tradition. So he came to look me over, and our meeting is described beautifully in our book, The Bowl of Light, our first meeting in which he came to hear me talk and, and validated, he validated my experiences. And then he approached me after my, my talk and said, listen, we should have a meeting before you leave the island. Well, listen, when the big kohono says you're going to have a meeting, you know, this is what's going to happen. So on the last day of December in 1996, my wife Jill and I met with the Kohona, Halimakua, at the edge of Kilauea Crater, which is in Volcano National Park. And first Makua took Jill to the women's place of power, where women make medicine, and they have from time immemorial on this island. Then he left her there and took me to the men's place of power. And he told me part of his story. And then as is described in the book, he said, I have to call my ancestors now. And so he began right there at the edge of this crater. I mean, we're standing like 500 feet 
straight above the, this this volcano crater with all these fissures and fumaroles which are steaming and and you know sulfurs coming out and stuff like that. Um, you know, he began to chant in Hawaiian. And as he was chanting in Hawaiian, I was listening to these names flowing off his tongue. And I was watching him very carefully. And as I watched him, I could see him physically transforming. But right before my eyes, as he named name after name after name after name. And I realized that he was calling these ancestors. I could see him physically changing in response to each name as he called it. And I realized that what he was doing is what shamans do everywhere. What really distinguishes the shaman as a, as a spiritual practitioner is the shaman is the one who uses their own body and their own mind to create a bridge between the world of things seen and the world of things hidden. All shamans understand that the world presents itself into two halves the world of things which we take for granted, the physical world, and then there's the dream world that interpenetrates and permeates this world uh, which we can't see. The shaman alone is the one who can see into this world because they have spirit vision. And what Maku was doing is he was using his body and his mind to create this bridge. And so his ancestors were literally coming across this bridge through his body into our world to witness the talk that we were just about to have. <laughs> this was really quite something for me, as a, I might add, as a Western anthropologist, as a scientist who is trained in the life sciences, to actually see this happening right before my eyes. You know, a lot of people think that this just happens in your mind, but, you know, in fact, it can extend itself into this world. And this is really what revealed to me that Makua was a shaman, just not, you know, he wasn't just a medicine man. He wasn't just a wisdom keeper. He was also a shaman who could form this bridge. And so he lived in two worlds all the time, the world of things seen and the world of things hidden. And he was actively involved with these ancestral spirits and his lineage who were his advisors. Now, Hank, I'm imagining as you're telling me this that his face changed, his expressions changed, and maybe he his body positions changed. But what to you presented as evidence or what gave you confidence that these were ancestors talking to him and that just, you know, that he wasn't on some kind of interior dream journey of, you know, invoking different kinds of felt, you know, sense of energies, shaking, changing his facial expressions. What what gave the actual sense of a reality of ancestral forms being present? Well, as you know, Tammy, from the book that Sandra Engerman and I co-authored together, Awakening to the Spirit World, both Sandra and I are shamanic practitioners. Now, I would never call myself a shaman, but I could say that I've been working in this tradition for 29 years. And so in response to his words, I just opened up the stops and let myself sink into that light trance state in which spirits can be seen and experienced. And I could see them. I could see that this is what was happening. I could see these ghostly forms, these globes of light that were passing you know, through and out of him and sort of taking form around him while he was chanting. This was really quite an experience. So, you know, in terms of evidence, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that, you know, we rarely receive confirmation from uh, experimental or machines or that kind of, of, of verification. 
it's just something that we learn how to do as shamanic practitioners through through practice and experience. What was your sense, what is your sense of the cosmic destiny, if you will, the essence of your relationship with Makua? And as part of that, I'd love to know, he left his body a few years ago. If you've had an ongoing sense of your relationship since his death. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that Makua told me on this first day when we met at the crater and we had this long conversation in which we got to know each other. My wife, Jill, was there as witness to most of this. During part of it, she went for a walk, giving us a chance to be together just man to man. But one of the things he told me is that he read my book, Spirit Walker, which came out, oh, what, 15 years ago now, and he realized that I was the guy he'd been looking for all of his life. Now, Makua was kahuna on both sides of his family, which means he comes from a long tradition of kahuna mystics. And on that day, he said, you know, I knew I would eventually meet you. I didn't know where it would happen or when it would happen, but I knew we would connect in this lifetime so that we can continue the work that we began together so very long ago. And by saying this to me, he was validating not only my experiences that are recorded in that book, Spirit Walker, but he was also saying to me, look, you know, we're in this together. You know, we've been working together across time in former lifetimes, and we're now going to spend some time together, and I have a lot of things I need to tell you, uh, things that I couldn't talk to you about in Hawaiian because they're kapu, they're restricted by the kapu system. But he said, I can talk to you in English. And there's a lot of information that will be of use to your descendant and future self. I don't know, if Tammy, if you ever read Spirit Walker, but Spirit Walker is the story of how I got into all of this. And I began to have these extraordinary visions while I was living here in Hawaii in the 1980s in which my conscious awareness was brought into connection with the mind of another man. And what makes this totally weird is that this other man lives in the future, It's a man of Hawaiian ancestry named Nainoa, and if I've got this right, and I believe I do, he's one of my future selves. He's one of my descendants, and we both share a common higher self. In other words, we're both physical manifestations of the same higher self or oversoul. Maku was riveted by this because in Hawaiian, the word for oversoul is omakua, Aumakua, A-U-M-A-K-U-A. Au in Hawaiian means time, and makua means parent. So the word aumakua could be translated as utterly trustworthy ancestral spirit. He realized that I had a relationship with the ancestors through my work as an anthropologist in prehistory, which some of your listeners know about because you know I continue to publish research with the Fossil Man Gang from East Africa about digs that are going on four million years ago with the missing link type stuff. But he also realized that I'd made connection in the future with one of my descendant selves. And so he realized that he had information he could pass to me, which theoretically my future self can access when we're in connection. It's it's very simple. It's like drag and drop on a computer. If it's in my mind, if it's in my memory banks, this guy who lives possibly 5,000 years down the road, has access to that information. 
And so Makua saw this as this incredible opportunity to pass knowledge about the Hawaiian kohuna mystical tradition to the future, knowledge which in all likelihood could be lost in the meantime, between now and then, because of all sorts of possibilities. So this put me as a scientist in a very interesting position. As you can imagine, you know, my colleagues, my scientific colleagues have largely left me alone. I think they've chosen to ignore my unusual books because that's the safest route out. You see, Tammy, I'm sitting on a large pile of data, scientific data, and they want my data. (laughs) This puts me in a good position. What's the scientific data that you're sitting on? Well, you know, what I do is I reconstruct the paleo-environments of early man sites at the time they were laid down. So when we're dealing with human evolution and we're dealing with the appearance of new species, the question is, why do these new species suddenly appear in the fossil record? And the answer, of course, lies in the paleo-environmental exigencies and the parameters in what's going on in the environment, because you you know, in in paleontology, which is the field I work in, uh, there are certain things that happen, like climatic change, which will encourage the appearance or disappearance of large complexes of of species of flora and fauna. And so what I do is I find the evidence for the appearance of a new species. And um, I'm currently working on these sites uh, associated with the species known as Artipithecus, Ramidus. Artipithecus is probably the famous missing link between humans and apes that Charles Darwin himself predicted we would eventually find in Africa. And it's about four and a half to five million years old. So my data involves reconstructing these paleo environments, naming new species, revealing what the world was like at that time, and how it abruptly changed, which may provide evidence for why humans came into into being at all. McCoy was fascinated by this, by the way, you know, and he he asked me often about, you know, what I was doing with because he saw me as involved with the ancestral field, just like he was. This was part of the link that brought the two of us together, he saw. And so during the last eight years of his life we had this extraordinary um these extraordinary conversations which you, as the chief, that sounds true, have graciously agreed to record in a book, you know, so that everybody who didn't have the chance to re- meet this great man can be on the receiving end of this knowledge, which is not an inconsiderable thing. Okay, now I, I think I understand a sense of what your connection with Makua meant to the to the two of you, and of course this is extremely wild, and I can understand why the scientists are leaving you to your own devices there in Hawaii in terms of you being a sole conduit for information to be passed 5,000 years into the future. It sounds crazy, doesn't it? What can I say? You know, I have these spontaneous dreamlike experiences in which I find connection with this man. Now, you know, looking at at that, that trilogy that I wrote, Spirit Walker, Medicine Maker, and Vision Seeker, that was finished like uh, 10 years ago, and those connections with this man in the future slowly closed down until this book with Makua. And last June, they opened up again for the first time in seven or eight years. So that's very exciting to me, and I have no idea what that's going to lead to because I'm, you know, I can't make it happen on my own. It's a, it's a two-way thing. 
and when we're in connection, it's like uh, it's like talking on the telephone. But you know, it's also like I'm there, and I mean, I'm like really there. You know, I'm inside his body, looking out at a world through his eyes, uh, receiving his memories, his thoughts, his emotions, uh, his discomforts. I mean, everything. It's uh, I've never met anybody else who's experienced this before. But, you know, I do have a small file of, of letters from others who have seen the future through descendant selves. So Makua saw this as an opportunity to pass a whole body of knowledge, which he was the caretaker of, into the future to this man who is actually of Hawaiian descent and who lives in a community largely of Hawaiian people, almost entirely of Hawaiian people, people derived from Hawaii, although they don't uh, speak a language which is spoken today, you know, being 5,000 years down the pike. Uh, when I'm in connection with him, in some strange way, I can pretty much understand the gist of what's going on. So this knowledge that Makua has, has, has transferred is, is meant to be passed on. And this is part of my kuleana, as they would say in Hawaii, part of my responsibility that I took on, apparently before I was born, although it took me almost 60 years to figure it out. Now, these appearances that have happened since June, you and your descendant 5,000 years from now, well, what has been happening since June? What, what's, what new information is being revealed to you? Well, you know, he wants information. Uh, he wants information about the past. And so I'm the one, apparently, he connects with. You know, there's... there's uh, precedent for this among the Native American traditions. The most obvious example is the ghost dance of the late 1890s when the northern Paiute prophet Wavoka was taken in a near-death experience, in an out-of-the-body experience, to the upper worlds, the shamanic upper worlds. And there he met with his ancestors and they gave him a dance of many movements that he was supposed to bring back and infuse into Native American culture. This became known initially as the dream dance or the prophet's dance. And from the Western Paiutes, it spread very rapidly through Native America, and the Sioux adapted it, and they had their own version of it, the standing dance. And uh, towards the 1950s, I think the Western Shoshone were still doing it. It became known as the ghost dance religion. And of course, the American military had no idea what this was, but they realized it was part of a cultural revitalization movement for the Native Americans who had lost everything. By the late uh, 1890s, you know, 95% of the Native American people of North America had been killed. It was their, their, it was their Holocaust. And they'd lost their prayers, they'd lost their ceremonies, they'd lost their magic, they'd lost their, their, their rituals and, and all of it. And so the ghost dance was actually a community, it was actually a kind of a community shamanism where the dance was done outdoors and the dancers would go into an altered state of consciousness in which they would step outside of time, journey back to the ancestors to recover lost knowledge from the past. This is what this man in, in the future seems to be doing, this man Nainoa. He's connecting with me as his ancestor to recover lost knowledge of the past, because he lives in a time, uh, if I can put it this way, 5,000 years after the collapse of what we call Western civilization. 
That's what the Spirit Walker trilogy is really about. If I've got this right, and I believe I do, you know, I've had a look at the future. And it's this book is what drew me into connection with Makua. Makua read it and came to look look me over and see if I was real. <laughs> you know, I wasn't expecting it when it happened. But once it happened, a friendship developed between us that it just got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And he began to confide extraordinary bodies of knowledge to me. So our book, you know, our project together, Tammy, has been an enchanted experience from beginning to end. And and frankly, it's way out beyond all of the books who've been written on Hawaiian spirituality. This is this is not a book about Huna, which stems largely from the work of Max Freedom Long, as you probably know. He was a school teacher who lived here a hundred years ago, and he was one of the first to begin to investigate the lost knowledge of the Kahuna mystics. He had a friend at the Bishop Museum in, in uh, Honolulu, and the two of them would sort of compare notes, and the whole Huna thing got started largely through his work, but it was limited in its scope by what he was able to perceive, and Makua's knowledge has taken us way beyond that. Now, I, I want to get to some of the key things you learned from Makua, but before we go there, I just have to stick with this descendant of yours, 5,000 years in the future, if you can uh, bear with me, Hank, which is, in your in your view, does that mean that the future is happening now simultaneously in some kind of parallel wrinkle of reality? Is it determined that Western civilization is going to collapse and in some realm has collapsed? I mean, how do you make sense of these visions that you have? Well, this is one of the, the real struggles that I had, and that trilogy that I wrote records those struggles and my my attempts to understand what was really going on. I just meant, because a lot of your listeners will have read these books years ago, um, if I've got this right, and I believe I do, uh, time is kind of like a cloud. And there are these slices that go through the cloud, which are like DVDs. And the the DVD that you and I are on right now is a very particular one that we could take out of the cloud and lie down and sort of play like you have a, in a jukebox. The one that Nainua's on is a different slice of time that exists in the same cloud, but it's 5,000 years down the road. So in your words, you could say that once we step out of the realm of the physical world and we go into the dream, into the dreaming or the dream time, as the Australian Aboriginals call it, all time is now, which means that all times are going on simultaneously, connected to each other by this interesting matrix or web of energetic stuff, which the Hawaiians call the Aka field, and which others have called, you know, Lynn McTaggart has written about it in uh, her book, The Field. So you could say that all time is now, and Nainoa and I, as descendants of the same oversoul field, or perhaps embodiments is a better word, embodied aspects of the same oversoul field are connected to each other through this grand central station of our higher self. And so in order to connect with each other, I connect with that higher self, which is a very easy thing to do if you know how to do it. And then through the higher self, I go out and find connection with this man I know of. It could be said that both he and I share uh, energy derived from that ancestral field. 
In other words, part of his energy is derived from my energy, and energy is the connection. And since energy is immortal, <laughs> it, it gives a, a way to understand how such connections are even possible across the time-space continuum. But in the shaman's world, you see, in the mystic's world, these experiences are expected. They're not ex considered to be exceptional by any means. And more and more Western people are becoming aware of this, which I feel very grateful for, because for the last three to four or five hundred years, you know, this, this tradition has been suppressed ruthlessly by our organized religious hierarchies of the Christian church, etc., etc. So, you know, this is all making a big comeback now, and it's right on schedule because we're coming to the end of the cycle of ages, aren't we? And it's always at the end of one cycle and the beginning of the next that a new kind of religion appears on the scene. And this new kind of religion that's appearing in our time, right at the center of this awareness, uh, is the realization that each one of us can make this direct transcendent connection with the sacred realms that defines the mystic, that defines the shaman, which means that each one of us becomes our own priest, our own priestess, our own prophet, our own teacher, our own guru, receiving our revelations from the highest sources ourselves without the infrastructure of any religious hierarchy between us and our experience of the sacred. More and more North Americans and Europeans are, are rediscovering this. And so there's great interest now in the shaman's path as an ancient form of meditation, which has suddenly reappeared right on schedule, right at the end of this cycle and the beginning of the next. And this is alignment, of course, with the prediction that the old Black Elk made almost 60 years ago before his death. Now, Hank, you, you mentioned, you know, connecting with one's higher self or oversoul is really pretty easy to do if you know how to do it. You sort of said that in a, in a slight offhanded way. And I can certainly imagine listeners at that point having their ears pick up and go, I'd like to know how to do that in a very easy way. Well, the key to this is the title of our little book, The Bowl of Light. Makua was... You know, one of the things that we talk about right at the beginning of the of the book is the fact that each one of us has not one, but three distinct souls. And he used the word soul with deliberation because each of these soul aspects originates from the same source, but they exist in very different states of quality. Now, at the beginning of a reincarnational cycle, each one of us is expressed by an oversoul or higher self aspect that exists always in the upper worlds of spirit, in the spirit worlds, in heaven, if you will. And what happens is that the time comes when that oversoul field divides itself and it sends in a seed of its light, which takes up residence in a new embodiment for a new lifetime when we receive our first breath. The Hawaiians call this first breath the ha, H-A. And the word ha refers to the divine breath of life that we receive with our first breath. With that first breath, that seed of light enters us and takes up residence within us. Where does it take up residence? It takes up residence within our heart, where it sits in deep meditation, watching and observing and supporting us as we progress through the life that we're going to lead. Now, the first thing this seed of light has to do is achieve 
a good working relationship with another soul which is already in residence. The other soul is the body soul, the physical soul, which we received from our mother and father. In the same way that there's a genetic template associated with the gametes, the sex cells, the sperm and the egg, which contains everything in the father's matrix, everything in the mother's matrix to create a new genetic template. There is also a psychic energetic template. And when that psychic energetic template from the mother and the father come together, they create a new pattern, which include all ancestral imprints from both the mother's and the father's side. So the first thing the seed of light has to do is form a good working relationship with this physical soul, which is already there. Now, once this has occurred, this third soul comes into being in response to life as we live it. This is the mental soul, what Freud called ego and what Jung called the conscious mind. The ego has a very particular job in each lifetime. It's the aspect of ourself that steers us successfully or unsuccessfully through life, depending on the convictions and beliefs that it has accepted as true. Now, the ego soul, or mental soul, if you will, is the aspect of ourself that thinks, analyzes, integrates, makes decisions, and directs. It's our inner director, our inner chief, our inner CEO. It also is the source of our volition, our intentionality, and our creative imagination. And this is extraordinarily important because we are creators. This is something we explore in the Bowl of Light in the last chapter the chapter which is called On Becoming Gods. In becoming creator beings, we actually achieve a level of godlike ability which no other species on this planet possesses. We alone have it. And each one of us comes in from the oversoul field as a god. But we forget who we are because we pass through the veil. This gives us a fresh start in each lifetime, which is what makes it all interesting. But at the end of life, all of those qualities and abilities that we've developed during life through these three souls, the seed of light that resides within our heart, the mental soul, and the body soul, these are transferred into the afterlife state when we make transition and eventually return to their source, to the oversoul field, where they're archived, which means each one of us then becomes an ancestor. It's like a DVD in which your Tamminess and my Hankness are recorded forever in our oversoul fields. You know, this is just part of the way in which things work. So, the bowl of light is actually a, a metaphor, in Makua's term, for that seed of light that comes and enters and takes up residence within us at the beginning of life. And during that first meeting that we had at the volcano, Makua gave us a very simple carved wooden Hawaiian bowl. And when he did, he said, this is your bowl of light. This is the light that was given to you by your higher self, by your Omakua, when you came into life. And that light nourishes and sustains you as you pass through life. But he said, you know, this time in human history, humans are so entrenched in the negative polarity that every time we step into the negative, it's like you put a stone in your bowl and some of the light goes out. So he said, eventually we come to the point where our bowls of light are almost filled with stones and there's no light coming out anymore. And he said, you know what you do then? And of course, we're very interested. And we said, what? And he said, it's easy. And he took the bowl and he turned it over. And he said, you just dump it out. 
He said, but from that time forward, you lead your life differently because you know what you're doing. It's at that point that you become a spiritual warrior. Now, Makui used the word warrior with intention because he was in the military for a good deal of his life. He was in five wars. The first was Beirut. The last was Vietnam. He was in the Marine Corps. And he was one of those archetypal military warriors who was legendary. He was like a Polynesian Rambo. And he was very, very badly wounded in his last tour of duty in Vietnam, spent five years in a hospital in San Antonio, Texas, keeping his legs. And, you know, my wife, Jill, who's a physical therapist, looked at his legs, which were very badly scarred with huge grafts on the back of his calves, said, my God, Makua, how did you do it? Five years in a VA hospital. And he grinned and he said, well, I had my own room for the last two years. But then he left and he said, you know, the deciding factor was really my ancestors. My ancestors came to visit me every day, sometimes twice. And by the time I was done there, I walked out of that hospital on my own legs and I was completely clean. It was at that point that I had dealt with all my grief, all my fears, all my tragedies. And I was I was just clean of that. That's when I became a spiritual warrior. So the bowl of light is a, is really a metaphor for our inner divinity. And when we turn our attention to that speed of light within our hearts, to get back to your question, which I have not forgotten, when we, when we uh, establish an active connection with that seed of light in our heart, it's like an open microphone. And that open microphone has a direct, direct link to your oversoul, which resides in the upper world of spirit, and when you turn toward the seed of light, you are in direct connection with your God self, with your teacher. This is the one that shamanic practitioners refer to as the spirit teacher, although most of them don't define it as being an aspect of yourself. How do I know if the bowl of light, this seed, this ha in my heart, is filled with stones or not? And I mean, how would I assess that? Well... When you look back on your life and you think about all those things that you did in your life which might have caused harm or suffering or anxiety or worry to other people, that's one of those stones. So, you know, we eventually come to a point where we realize as we scan our life that all these negative experiences that we've engaged in are part of our life lessons, you know, and we got through them somehow. But often we hold grudges or we hold negativity, we hold memories. We hold um, memories of things that were done to us or that happened to us. And so it's like you have to do a kind of forgiveness ritual where you intentionally go into an altered state, into a meditative state, if you will, and you bring up one at a time all those people who did the dirty to you. This is discussed in in, uh, the Bowl of Light, by the way. You bring up one at a time, all those people who did the dirty to you, and one at a time you offer them unconditional forgiveness, and then you just let the whole incident go. And when you let it go, you really let it go. It means you don't turn your attention back to that incident or that person ever again. So once you get through with that list of all the people who wounded you or who were mean to you, Then you start on yourself, and you look at all those people that you did the dirty to, in full awareness or not. You know, they're those people who we injured with our words or our thoughts or our deeds. 
sometimes without even intending to. And once again, just one incident at a time, you offer yourself the same unconditional forgiveness, and then you just let them go. It's about shedding burdens. It's about clearing the field of all those intrusive energies that you no longer need to carry. This is a very good thing to do. It's what Carolyn Mays calls um, energy circuits. She refers to these intrusions as energy circuits. And, you know, they're kind of like electrons uh, rotating around you in your energetic field, which, as you know, extends out about oh, four or five feet around your physical body, the denser part of it. So they're not only inside you, but they're around you. And when you turn your attention toward them, you feed them. They draw from your life force. Uh, diminishing you on a regular basis. So when you empty the bowl, you're clear. You're clear. But then you start leading your light differently, and you don't do that anymore. That's when you become a spiritual warrior. And one of the great teachings that Mokua offered was on that very same day. He said, when we begin to walk the path of the spiritual warrior, there are three kapus, three sacred directives, that we must honor. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I can talk to you about this because we wouldn't be talking today if you hadn't already reached that place of understanding. So he said, the first kapu, you must love all that you see with humility. And I'm thinking, whoa, easy one first. And now Makua is very clairvoyant, so I just burst out laughing because he heard immediately what I thought. Love all that you see with humility. And Makua looked at me and he said, you know, I worked on that one for seven years. The second directive, live all that you feel with reverence. This reverence, this this is an active respect. In in indigenous mind, indigenous mind, the foundation stone is respect. The indigenous person greets and meets everything that they encounter in life on that foundation stone, from the place of respect. When Makua told me this, I said, what's the foundation stone for a Western mind? And he smiled kind of sadly, and he said, well, the foundation stone for Western mind is the same as colonial mind. The foundation stone for Western mind is dominion, domination, control. And it's really created the world which we've brought into being, hasn't it? So there's reverence is more than just, you know, something, it's more than just a word, you know, live all that you feel with reverence. In order to do that, you really have to, you know, change the way in which you approach life and your own life and the world at large. And finally, the third couple, the third directive, we must know all that we possess with discipline, with discipline. And as you know, discipline is essential when you walk the spiritual path. You can't survive without it. And this is where so many of the gurus and the teachers have stumbled. Discipline also, of course, involves self-discipline. And knowing all that you possess also involves knowing what possesses you. Who is your master? So this is really our path. You know, Our path is one of humility, reverence, and self-discipline in which we love, in which we live, and in which we know who we are. And this is so important because, as Makua put it, you cannot experience authentic initiation unless you know who you are. 
And in his opinion, and this is something I learned from him, you know, most of us in the Western world, you know, we don't have a clue who we are. We're still trying to figure it all out because we've been seduced by the glitter of our gadgets and our little toys, you know, and all those things that we hold to be very, very important. And a lot of people are still out there in search of initiation, which once again leads me to say that the work that Sounds True is doing is so important in relation to this. Because really, there are so many people that come into my workshops, that come into my conference presentations, who are still in search of initiation, of trying to figure out who they are and what they're doing. What do you mean by initiation in this context, Hank? Well, initiation is a transformation. It's really about growing into and becoming who and what you agreed to be when you came into this life. And all along the way, we've been faced with the masters of illusion. And that includes Hollywood, that includes television, that includes the entertainment industry, it includes politics, it includes virtually everything that we take for granted. The masters of illusion uh, are the ones who create these these facades, these illusions, these these strange dreams that capture us and ensnare us so that we never find out who we are, what we're doing here, and what this place is really all about. So in order to experience authentic initiation, you have to reach that point where you know who you are as well as where you are. This is something we discuss in our little book that we created together. I'm very happy about that. Now, there's something I want to circle circle back to because it was very intriguing to me. You, you mentioned that at the end of The Bowl of Light that you discuss the potential for human beings to have godlike abilities. What, what do you mean, godlike abilities? Well, this is an interesting uh, chapter, and it, it comes at the end of the book because Makua passed in, in 2004, and I write about his passage and the ceremony that followed his passing from the Hawaiians and the myth-making that happened after his passing by all sorts of people who knew him a little, who then started to claim all sorts of fanciful things. But we had an interesting conversation, he and I, and I think it was in 2000, maybe 2001, where he and I spent an entire day together, just the two of us. And Makua was the sort of man, he waited to be asked questions. He just didn't volunteer information. He waited to be asked questions, and in listening to the questions, he could judge the level of information that his listeners were ready to receive, okay? And he could create the answers and craft them specifically for those levels. Well, McCoy and I had a very deep friendship, a very unusual friendship, in which here I am, you know, a Ph.D. from Berkeley who works in international science, and here he is, the Kohuna Nui, the big Kohuna of of um, an extended family here in Hawaii and so forth. So our conversations were really quite extraordinary. And on that particular day, I asked him very specifically about this issue, which he often mentioned, that we come into this world as God. It's just that we forgot who and what we really are as well as what we're supposed to be doing here. Makoa was quite adamant that human beings alone on this world possess God-like qualities. These involve the ability to be creators, to, to choose, as opposed to all of those well-intentioned transformational speakers uh, from the top guys on down who've said things like, you've got to get rid of your ego or you've got to drop your ego. 
If you told that to this kahuna, he would just laugh long and hard, and then he would recover and say, absolutely not. He said, that's exactly the opposite of what we're here to do. We're actually here to develop the ego. That's why we embody, because the ego is the sole aspect that involves our uh, ability to choose, to create, to become more than we were, to create thought forms and goals of things that we wish to have or achieve, and then act on them to bring things into being. I mean, it's like I'm talking on this telephone here in Hawaii, sitting in a house that was designed by my wife, and you're sitting in, in Louisville or Boulder, uh, wherever you are in Colorado. And I used to live there, and so I can sort of project my conscious awareness and think about you sitting in, and talking with me, connected by this incredible technology that we brought into being. You know, that's that's a godlike ability to create what we've created. The problem is now that we have to develop a sense of ethics, a really hardcore sense of ethics, because if you look at the way we're treating each other in the world at large today, it's hard to believe that we're godlike beings, isn't it? You know, the early anthropologists, I used to teach anthropology at the university level, so I've got all this stuff running around inside my head. There were a bunch of early anthropologists in the late 1870s, 1880s, who came up with this theory that humanity had progressed through three, three major stages, savagery, barbarism, and civilization. Now, this is a very simplistic way of looking at human evolution, especially cultural evolution. And some even subdivided these stages into lower, middle, and upper barbarism, <laughs> with examples as to which were which and so forth and so on. Well, you know, when you think about this whole concept of civilization, the question arises, does civilization equal technological sophistication? Or does civilization involve a whole new way of approaching each other and treating each other in a civilized way? We do pretty well with our pets and our horses. We don't do too well with the homeless and disadvantaged and the poor, do we? These are not qualities which you would expect from a high civilization. And, you know, I think about this a lot, especially at 2 o'clock in the morning. I tend to wake up at 2 in the morning and do a lot of thinking and meditating. And this morning I was thinking about the fact that, you know, in all truth, we are the Romans of our time. Uh, when I say that, you know, I mean, if you look at ancient Rome, we're very much like them. We're superb engineers. We created these incredible things like the Romans did. And like the Romans, we've created these gladiatorial games that go on for, for weeks and months at a time. I'm thinking about basketball and football and baseball and golf and all these things which are distractions for the public at large. So we're very much like them, although the cycle has come around and we're at a higher level, hopefully, than the Romans were. For example, we don't kill the gladiators anymore. But we're still very much hooked on these these distractions. These distractions are carefully crafted in a mystical sense by an archetypal force who is known as the master of illusion. And the job of the master of illusion, as I've said, is to ensnare us and capture us so we never find out who we are, what we're doing here, and what this is all about. And so the master of illusion isn't kind of like a threshold guardian. Uh, he isn't evil. He's, he's more like a threshold guardian when you think about it. And once you pass the test, once you see who this dude is, and you turn off the TV set or you turn off 
your little things that are plugged into your ears and you start paying attention to what's going on around you, you've reached a point where it's a definite step up. So it's, you know, I often think of Mahatma Gandhi's statement when he arrived in England all those many years ago, 50, 60 years ago, when some British reporter came up to him and said, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think about Western civilization? And he answered, oh, I think it's a very good idea. You know, I still I still think that. I think we've got a ways to go. But I have tremendous hope, and this book with Holly Makua is really about creating that hope about creating a foundation for the next cycle of ages. And that chapter in our book called The Ancestral Grand Plan is about, really, Makua creating the foundation upon which we can build the next cycle. I didn't really think about that until I really began to formally write that book up and and consider these concepts. But as you remember, the beginning of the ancestral grand plan involves involving those ourselves in those activities which are designed to expand the consciousness of humankind. In other words, create expansion rather than separation. The second part of the plan involves all the teachers, all the gurus, all the kahunas, all the you know mystical guys who are out there and and women out there on the path teaching. It involves all of us bringing our students and our acolytes and our initiates together, connecting with each other, creating connection rather than separation, so that we can really come together to create an entirely new world that we want to pass on to our descendants. This is really what the goal is. And this is not a small thing. This book is a contribution, I hope, to doing just that. Hank, you know, there are so many things that I'd love to talk with you about, but I'm going to throw this out as the last question, at least for this conversation, which is you've referred now a couple of times to something that you're calling the ancestral grand plan, and that this is a plan that is so important at this time, a time that you're calling a a changing of the ages. Can you give us just a little bit more of a of a feeling? What is quote-unquote, the ancestral grand plan? Well, the ancestral grand plan begins with two very specific areas. And the first involves uh, creating those circumstances which involve the expansion of the consciousness of humankind at all levels, among children, among adults, among families, among businesses, among politicians, at every level the expansion of the consciousness of humankind, which means a spiritual expansion. The second level involves creating those circumstances where all of the spiritual teachers, all the gurus, all the kahunas, all the shamans, all the priests and priestesses, you know, can come together and create connection rather than separation and at the same time bring all of their students, their acolytes, their initiates together as well to create a spiritual community. Um, And in this respect, there are three more levels of participation which involve religion on the one hand, politics on another, and science and education on still another. And these are explored a little bit in the chapter on the Ancestral Grand Plan. 
uh, helping us to zero in on what our contributions might actually be, where our strong points are, uh, where our responsibilities lie. Because having talked about the fact that we're in the process of becoming gods, when you create something, when you bring something into being, you acquire responsibility. You have to be responsible for that creation. And so those of us who are working in science and education, for example, Mako was very interested because that's been my life work. Those who are working in spirituality and religion, for many, this is their focus of their entire lives. And then, of course, there is politics, you know, our political leaders. If you look at the way in which our political leaders are are functioning, or some might say malfunctioning right now, it's obvious that we really need to upgrade the entire process. This was a plan, the ancestral plan, that was set into motion by the ancestors in the mythic past. And so the chapter in the book, The Bowl of Light, will allow us to see how the plan is playing out in our time today and what our piece of the action might be. Let's go, ancestral grand plan. Yes, yes, yes. Hank, thank you so much. Thanks for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. Hank Wesselman, the author of a new book from Sounds True called The Bowl of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman, a book that goes into quite some depth on Hank's relationship with Hale Makua and the teachings from Hawaiian shamanism that he learned, gathered from that friendship. Hank is also the co-author, along with Sandra Ingerman, of a book from Sounds True called Awakening to the Spirit World. And beginning on June 30th, Hank will be leading a three-part online event series on the Shaman's Path, a practical workshop for Awakening to the Spirit World. And if you're interested in that, you can learn more at SoundsTrue.com. Hank, thank you so much. Hey, as they say in Hawaii, mahalo nui. Thanks. Big, big, and big alohas to you and everyone there. Big alohas. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.